0: The covenant of marriage has always been of supreme importance to God and His people. It is also a delicate and tender topic for many, one that represents a myriad of emotions within an incalculable number of circumstances. Despite the generations upon generations between our time and Old Testament time, and the many differences in custom, tradition, and culture, there's much to learn from those who face their challenges with God by their side and trusted in His plan. As we make our own way down the covenant path, embracing uncertainties with faith, and clinging to the hopes of the future may we always retain in our hearts the divinity within us the potential it carries and the steep cost of forsaking it i invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the spirit can teach us individually and specifically welcome to come follow up
1: A tool that has helped me in my marriage uh, with Mary Jane is our mutual commitment to our temple covenants.
2: We collaborate and play as a team, you know, and the kids too. Now she's 12, I have another one that's 10, and we all are a team. We always keep, you know, playing and keeping our team strong so we get things done.
1: We're grateful for our covenants. We're grateful for each other, and we always have that mutual support and uh, and joy from that.
3: My parents have a really strong relationship with each other because they always like work together as a
2: team to like
3: like give a, me and my brother what we need to like succeed, or like if we need homework or sports and activities. They always like work together with that. They always help
4: us through everything.
0: Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. The discussion topics today come from our studies of Genesis chapters 24 through 27. The first topic we're going to discuss is, why is the marriage between Isaac and Rebecca relevant to me? And the second topic is, I can choose between immediate gratification and things of greater value. And to help us with our discussion today, we want to first welcome back our scholar, Melissa Inouye. Welcome, Melissa.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Melissa is a church historian and has her PhD from Harvard. Pretty impressive.
3: Uh, it's school in Boston. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, we also want to welcome our special guest today, Shane Anderson. Shane was born in New York, grew up in New Jersey, Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, oh, and Utah. Okay. And uh, Shane, tell us a little bit about your background and what you're going to be teaching us about today.
5: So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist here in Utah, and I also have a PhD in child and family development. So I'll be here to talk a little bit about the importance of marriage and kind of what makes good marriage.
0: All right. We're excited to hear from you. And Shane is married with five kids, correct? Yes. All right. Well, we're excited to have you both here today. Well, let's get to our first topic. Why is the marriage between Isaac and Rebecca relevant to me? All right, historian, give us a little background of of this specific story in these chapters.
3: You know, Abraham sends a servant to go find a wife for Isaac from among his the people of his birthplace. And the servant goes with this retinue of ten camels and a bunch of servants, other servants, and arrives at a well. And a well you know, in in this desert culture is is kind of the place where everyone hangs out. It's the place where everyone has to go. He would, you know, have been on this long desert journey and he would be arriving at a well and, you know, water is super important. So at this well scene, he's asked God in in advance to help him know who it is who he should ask to marry Isaac. And he gives God these kinds of specifications, right? The the person who not only offers me water, but who offers to draw water for my 10 camels. Um, He sees Rebecca Uh, This happens, and then Rebecca agrees to go back with him. So that's kind of the basic betrothal story. But it's super interesting for a couple of reasons. This was a huge feat at that time. So a dehydrated camel who's made a long desert journey will drink about 30% of their body weight. And an average camel is like 500 kg. So Shane and I um, have figured out that (laughs) um, 10 camels, so so each camel would drink about 150 liters of water, So then you multiply that by 10, that's 1,500 liters of water. So then she's hauling, going back and forth between the well, running down the steps of the well, grabbing the water right up to the trough, dumping the water in the trough. So she would have been like this blur of motion, carrying 1,500 liters of water for these camels in a single jug. And the amount of like weight that she would have lifted the whole time, Shane and I have calculated, is equivalent to one grand piano plus one adult male moose plus a full Harley-Davidson plus a refrigerator, plus a baby elephant. So this is like as close as you get in the Bible to kind of Herculean feat, like something that people are like, whoa, you know, like a kind of mythical almost um, feat of strength and energy and hospitality.
0: Okay, so nowadays when young men and young women are at that age or they want to get married, I, I would imagine that mom and dad are so far removed from that decision process it's like, look, this is my thing I'm going to do. Okay? But that's not the case here. So why was it that Abraham was so concerned about finding a wife for his son?
5: Because marriage was so important in that culture. And in that time, the marriages were arranged. So it was the duty of Abraham and to, to find a spouse from among his family. The marriage covenant for them was particularly important because that was how God was going to fulfill the promises he had made to Abraham. that This was going to be the continuation of the Abrahamic covenant.
0: As far as Abraham goes, how did this process work with the prayer, faith, role of the Holy Ghost? How did all those factors play a role in this search for a wife for his son?
5: So Abraham was really clear. I mean, he chose the eldest of his the servants, the, the one who is most important. And he said, you can have whatever you want. Take whatever you need to find this wife for my son. And you have to do it from among the the people that I came from, not from among the people of this land. And the servant was a little concerned. He was like, well, I don't know if this is going to happen, right? What if I can't, you know, fulfill this this job that you've given me? It's a pretty big task, It's a big task, yeah. Go to this place miles and miles away and find a wife from my family and you may not find them but you'll you'll figure it out right so the servant was like how am i going to do this but then the servant went out with faith right he he had faith that god was going to be able to fulfill this commandment he knew that god loved abraham and he knew that if he was faithful god would bless him in his task and so he relied fully on the spirit right he he went to god and said here's how I propose that I accomplish this task. And then right away, it happened, right? If only all of our decisions happened like that.
0: On that note, when have you seen a time in your life where you had to rely on faith, you had to rely on the Holy Ghost to lead you to a place where you needed to be? Michael, please.
1: I'm a convert and I was 25 years old and had just decided to ma- get married and my wife told me that she wanted to raise our children uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so I spent a lot of time studying, praying, meeting with missionaries and being guided by the spirit as to what decision I was going to make. It was a big decision for me because it was very different, mm-hmm. very different kind of church than I was used to and uh When I heard the doctrine of families can be together forever, that sealed the deal. And I think this really applies to, you know, the the marriage of, uh, of Isaac and Rebecca.
0: You know, when you heard this, the doctrine of marriage and family, for example, how does that feel to you specifically?
1: Well, I mean, I'd never, never heard it before. And when the missionaries, I heard it from the missionaries. And when they spoke the words, it was, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. I know that's true immediately wow you know it was it was an instant uh connection that i had with with that idea with that doctrine and uh, it really was the key to getting me into the baptismal waters
0: what a great story thank you so much for sharing that i really appreciate it any other insights that we can glean from isaac and rebecca's marriage i mean there's lots of things
5: that we can glean from this we can we can talk about the characteristics of their marriage right we don't we don't see the day-to-day life that they lived but we do get some insight into what their marriage was like it says that Isaac loved Rebecca and then it says in the next verse that he was comforted by her when when his mom passed away mm-hmm. and if you think about the people in your life who can comfort you for someone to comfort you you have to be able to have kind of that close relationship with them you have to be able to be open and vulnerable in their presence and they have to know you so well that they can give you what you need to to feel comforted
0: so previous to coming out here we have this conversation that i thought was really interesting you mentioned something about the study that you had had read about the difference between about commitment yeah commitment will you explain yeah. that a little bit so
5: there's something about making a commitment to each other something about making a promise that is binding that we do when we get married right we we commit to each other to be there for each other for for all time and And all eternity. And that dedication, that commitment means something. So um, in this study, they were looking at the ability of someone to comfort you. And they had a sample of cohabiting couples and a sample of, of married couples. And one partner was in an MRI. They were kind of doing brain scans as they were doing this. And they found that married couples were able to comfort each other in a way that wasn't happening with cohabiting couples, that there's something about the commitment of marriage that allowed that person to comfort you in a way that didn't happen, even if you'd been living with that partner for a long time.
0: I love how you, you mentioned that, just this idea of when there is a marriage, that it means something a little bit more. We actually had a question from one of our viewers in regards to, to this, and I'd love to get your, uh, your thoughts on it.
4: Hi. I'm Annika from Missouri City, Texas. My young women leaders have talked a lot about covenants and the covenant path. So my question is: Why is marriage a covenant? Bye.
3: <laughs> I think that de- that relies on a definition of covenant, okay. right? A covenant is a sacred promise that we make with with God or with others. Um, so, for example, um, the baptismal covenant in Mosiah is. A covenant, um, a sacred promise that we make, and not only with God, but with each other. So in a a similar manner, marriage is a promise that we make with God and then with another person. I guess the question to me is, what is the strength that's added when we make a promise of that nature? It can be kind of scary, right, to make a promise with a a divine being who's all-powerful, omniscient, and, and who can tell when you mess up or when you break your promise. But I think for me, the strength of a covenant is that I know that it's special and I, I, it has value and I also respect it in a way that I don't if I like, like in some ways if you buy clothes at a store, um, that's like a, a covenant, where right? You pay money and you get the clothes, but then you can also just like go back. You can like return the clothes. Um, but I can't like return my husband. Um, I don't want to. Um, so it's just like a, it's like a powerful bond. And I think when you have a powerful bond like that, then it feels a lot safer and it feels um, like it's a space where you could fail a little bit and still kind of keep on
0: going. Okay, so what I'm gonna (laughs) do is, uh, I wanna go to the the audience. What are things that make a successful marriage? Patricia, please.
2: I think uh, work as a team, it's uh, very important. We both uh, work together and kind of cover each other. It just kind of goes along all day long, you know, try to think, okay, what would you do here? What would you do there? And just, you know, just getting task done together. And so we know he has my back or he can cover this or I can do this. You don't worry about that. You know, I got it, or the things and then we try to find our skills, you know, who can do this faster, you know, I can do this faster, or he can, you know, work on the lights. Better than me, and that's why we think it works better.
0: I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Other thoughts, Jamie, go ahead.
2: I think for us in our marriage,
3: it was it's remembering to keep God as a part of it. When I tried to decide what to do on my own or do it my way, a lot of times we'll clash heads, and you know that can cause conflicts in our marriage. Or how I want to raise the kids, or how he might want to handle a situation with the kids. But I think. When we try to remember to keep God in it and to make him a part of it, um, when we try to do family scripture study or you know, go to church every week, it's in no way a perfect marriage, but when we take those times to remember that God is a part of it, that we made that covenant between ourselves and God, it makes it go smoother and the family runs better if we're involving God in the decisions that we're trying to make.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Now, is this your daughter next to you? Yeah. Okay, Sydney, will you tell us what is something that you've seen in your mom and dad's marriage that you hope to have in your own marriage?
4: I like when my parents, whenever they fight, that they're able to fix it and they're, it doesn't take forever. They're able to do it pretty fast.
5: That's good, I love that. When, when we think about marriage and what really makes partners come together, it's really pretty simple. Each partner has to be accessible to the other. When you reach out to your partner, you know that they're going to be there. They're going to take your phone call. They're going to respond to your text. They're going to be there when you start telling them about the hard day that you had. But they can't just be there. They have to be responsive to your needs. So they have to respond in a way that makes you feel like you're heard. And that leads to engaging conversations. It leads to you engaging with each other. And that engagement is what builds that intimacy. The underlying idea, though, is that you have to be willing and vulnerable to share what's going on in your life, to your partner, and then they have to respond in a way that makes you feel close to them.
0: So I wanna bring up this uh, quote from President Nelson before we uh, close this portion out. He says, just as harmony comes from an orchestra, only when its members make a concerted effort, so harmony in marriage also requires a concerted effort. That effort will succeed if each partner will minimize personal demands and maximize actions of loving selflessness. You know, and Shane, you had brought up uh, this quote from F. Burton Howard about how we treat things that when you want something to last forever in regards to marriage, would you mind reading that for us?
5: Sure. If you want something to last forever, you treat it differently. You shield it and protect it. You never abuse it. You don't expose it to the elements. You don't make it common or ordinary. If it ever becomes tarnished, you lovingly polish it until it gleams like new. It becomes special because you have made it so and it grows more beautiful and precious as time goes by.
0: And I love that because it applies not only to marriage, but to that sealing power of this whole family of of God's children that you, you protect things that mean something that you want to last forever. Thank you for your insights on why the marriage between Isaac and Rebecca is relevant to me.
1: So something that was valuable to me as a kid was family and the way it really just worked everything
0: out.
2: The most valuable thing to me when I was a little kid was my relationship with
3: my family. I always had to make sure that we were always on good terms so that way we all lived a happy life.
1: (laughs) Something that was uh, intensely valuable to me as a child was uh, just seeing the work work ethic of both of my parents. And understanding that they were doing all of those things for me and that I needed to take take up that mantle and look forward to having my own children and doing the same thing for them.
0: So moving on to our second topic of discussion, which is I can choose between immediate gratification and things of greater value. Now, we get some interesting stories here with Jacob and Esau, birthright pottage. But there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on here. So let's go ahead and just tell us a little bit about just Jacob and Esau as individuals first.
3: So the two kids are born. Rebecca has a difficult time. If anyone has been pregnant knows like, you know, what it, what it would mean, how it feels to have children clashing within you. I've never had twins, um, but I have had one kid just um, clashing and it's, it's a lot of, it's very annoying. So she gives birth, and um, there's, there's Jacob, there's Esau. It says, the lads grew up. I'm, I'm reading from a contemporary English translation. Um, the lads grew up, and Esau was a man skilled in hunting, a man of the field. And Jacob was a simple man, a dweller in tents. And Isaac loved Esau for the game that he brought him, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob prepared a stew, and Esau came from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, let me gulp down some of this red, red stuff, for I am famished therefore his name is called Edom. And Jacob said, sell now your birthright to me. And Esau said, look, I am at the point of death, so why do I need a birthright? And Jacob said, swear to me now. And he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank, and he rose and he went off. And Esau spurned the birthright.
0: I mean, there's some major uh, conflict, I guess if you want to call it, between Jacob and Esau, beginning with what you just talked about with the selling of the birthright. Any insights on that?
3: Well, um, one thing that I noticed just from this text is that, you know, why why did Isaac love Esau? Because he loved the game that he brought him. <laughs> so Isaac says is, is here, like, he's like really controlled by his stomach, yeah. right? And the same thing with Esau. You know, the, the, the text here, um, the translation says, you know, the reason why it's translated, this red, red stuff. This is as close as this kind of literary Hebrew gets to substandard language. It's to emphasize, Esau is just like, he can't even find the proper word for stew. He's just like, that's that red stuff. Give me some <laughs> of that stuff. And Rebecca and Jacob also had a, you know, Rebecca's the one who left her whole family. She's like a long-term planner. Mm-hmm. She, she went off to, pursue a, better, a good opportunity, a good job opportunity for her as a wife. Jacob also seems to be planning for his future, right?
5: Yeah. And there's, there's like this massive sibling rivalry between uh, Jacob and Esau that if my brother came to me and he was on the point of starvation and like he's willing to do anything, I'm not going to take
0: advantage of him in that moment. I'm going to give him the, the pottage or the stew, right? Right. You know, we're, we're talking about giving up something for this immediate gratification. So why did he do it? Why, why was Esau, I mean, he was hungry, so he was in a, you know, you could call it a compromised situation where he's really hungry. But why was he so quick to give up his birthright? What is he not understanding? What does that tell us about Esau?
5: Well, I think it tells us two things. One, I think it tells us just how desperate of a state he was in. Okay. Because he, growing up in that time, he would have understood much better than you and I do just how much he was giving up. So this was a point where he was willing to give up all this inheritance, the right of leadership for for generations to come because he thought he was going to die. He was paying full attention to his body to to that natural man. I'm thinking about the you know the scripture in Mosiah 3 where it tells us that kind of the essence of our life one of the things that we have to learn is how to temper our, our bodies. We have to learn how to control these, these appetites. We're all familiar with the scripture. It says, For the natural man is an enemy to God, and has been from the fall of Adam, and will be forever and ever, unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, and putteth off the natural man, and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord, and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. So in, this is a moment in which Esau is not allowing for his own agency, for his own control over his body, to take precedence. He's, he's saying, natural man, I give, I give in. The food is much more important right now than all that I'm giving up. And I think there's a lesson for us in that, that, that we need to uh, always temper ourselves.
0: From your experience as a therapist, how does this affect marriages and families when people are so quick to give up? something that they want at the moment versus something that they want most. Yeah.
5: In in many ways mar- a successful marriage is about giving up what you want in the moment for what what's most important long term. Uh, a successful marriage is one in which you can pay attention to the other person's needs before your own, right? And that only works though when both partners are doing it, right? If only one partner is being selfless that that ends up being called abuse. Um, but when both partners are willing to give up their immediate needs to put the other the needs of the other person first, it makes for a wonderful marriage.
0: So how have you seen that affect your own marriage?
5: When I'm thinking about myself and what I want, um, it's so so much easier to get frustrated with my partner for not providing me with what I want. The moments when I'm really thinking of her and what she needs, those are the moments where we're where our marriage is most successful, when, when I'm trying to make her happy and do everything for her that, that she could possibly
0: want. Thank you for sharing that. Melissa, give us some thoughts.
3: Well, I think this, this story makes me think about social media. Like what's more immediate gratification-esque than social media? You, um, you see something, it's like some sort of comment someone makes, you like whack them down. What's more immediate gratification-y than that kind of digital feedback that we have? Those super fast interactions where we just kind of like, usually put ourselves out there by like putting someone down, right? And so then what do we give up? What birthright do we give up when we do that? And I would say we're giving up our relationship as members of the human family. Like instead of treating someone like we want our brother or sister to treat us and treating them like someone like that we protect and that we want to flourish we're treating someone like an enemy, like garbage, like someone who should be just like thrown to the wolves. And that's what we give up, that precious birthright that we have as a, as a member of the family of God. In essence, we're saying we don't want to be part of that family. We just want to have these
0: enemies So I wanna ask some some comments from the audience. Uh, What are some things that are of great value to us that oftentimes we feel people are trying to sell short and they're trying to get us to go against those values that we hold so dear for something less than? Jennifer, go ahead.
4: I am from the East Coast. I'm from Miami, Florida. So being that I was in a school with 2000 kids and I was only two member, there were only two members in the school. And it really just felt as if it was hard. And in terms of that, I felt like it was so easy to kind of be more worldly and forget about our Heavenly Father and to find that, especially in that huge school, to find that connection with God. So it, you can sometimes just lose your sight of what really matters. And in the long term, it's really going back to Heavenly Father and dwelling back in His presence. And in that moment, I think what you really lost and what people can really lose is just that sight of the long term. Was it
0: hard in that environment to really feel those promptings from the Holy Ghost? And and if so, like how did you combat that?
4: Yes and no. Yes, because before I was a member of the church, I just felt like normal, like sort of like a darkness almost. And then after I had gotten baptized, I just felt this light. And of course, when I felt that light and then I would go into these situations where the gospel wasn't present, I would feel it start to go away. So it was, it was so, sort of hard, but... I would just keep praying and literally I would have my Bible with me and I would literally read in class and people are just like, what is she doing? And I'm like, I'm protecting myself. I need this. (laughs) So I just, I I would just say like connecting with Heavenly Father and He knows what's best for us in the long term.
0: Jennifer, you are an amazing example. Thank Thank you you. so much for sharing Mm -hmm. that. I really appreciate it. So in this story with Esau, he's hungry. He has an appetite that he's trying to satisfy immediately. What are some things that we can do to control those appetites so that we don't ignore what we really want?
5: So much of what we do is, is dictated by our physiological responses, right? In this case, it was hunger. In other cases, it's, it's anxieties, it's fears. And I think for all of them, it's important just to take a step back and to give yourself a minute to, to think, um, to not let your body... Take control, but to let it be a down escalation. So where we're we're allowing our brain to to govern rather than than our our body, our physiology, and and that means being mindful, thinking intentionally about what we're doing rather than allowing ourselves to just just go with the flow.
3: So I think you know we Latter Day Saints have this kind of uh, reputation publicly for discipline in the things that we eat, uh, that we drink. I think we also need to remember that it's not just carnal desires, but it's the, the the kind of quick, gratifying interactions with people that can um, rev up this natural self. And, and to, to truly reign in the natural self and not be God's enemy, we need to be submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to God. So in our interactions with people, I think it means we should talk less and listen more. It means that we should assume that the other person might be right in some ways at least we can think about you know what is the probability that my melissa's platform of like the way the world should be is in fact the way the world should be it's like a very low probability right and if that's the case then something that someone else is saying is probably has something to offer me
0: you know what we surround ourselves on a regular basis You know, at times it's going to be really, really tough because it's not always going to be just this choice of good and evil, right? Sometimes it's good and better, you know what I mean? And there's a really great quote from Sister Parkin that talks about this idea of making those, uh, those choices. We are all trying to choose the good part which cannot be taken from us to balance the spiritual and the temporal in our lives. Wouldn't it be easy if we were choosing between visiting, teaching, or robbing a bank? Instead, our choices are often more subtle. We must choose between many worthy options. You know, I think that's really where the role of the Holy Ghost comes in. As we're trying to make these choices on a regular basis, we have to always be mindful of what is the end goal that we're trying to achieve. And sometimes it's not really uh, an easy choice.
5: But I also think we we need to give ourselves some space to for that to be okay. We're we're not Christ. We're we are imperfect human beings, and um, if we're always beating ourselves over the head for not always making the perfect choice, it's a life of misery. Because most of the time, I'm probably not making the perfect choice. So I think we have to have a little bit of self compassion and to say it's okay not to be perfect. And to to me, that's part of the atonement is relying
0: on Christ for making up for all of my imperfections. That's a great thought. I think that we all can at some level understand that idea of there's there are things that we are trying to protect, things that we are trying to to work towards and if we're not careful, we can allow these little temptations to kind of sneak in and get us to give up. To have that long-term perspective, I think is a really it's a truly a, a gift to be able to see long-term of what we're we're constantly working and striving for. So before I close up this discussion on the topic of I can choose between immediate gratification and things of a greater value, anything, any last thoughts?
3: I'm just super excited in footnotes to talk about the chapter 27, where we talk about Jacob and Esau and the blessing. I think it's um, a super kind of gnarly situation. It also helps us understand prophets and church history generally.
0: That's gonna be a fun conversation. Yeah, I'm
5: really looking forward to delving more into these topics.
0: Well, thank you both for being here. Thank you, audience, for your comments. And that wraps up this portion of the episode.
2: Today, the Spirit reminded
3: me that God is in everything and the things that happened in the past are evident right now in my life. I feel like the Holy Ghost taught me that we need to have an open mind to what God wants us to
2: do. We remind that, sit back and look what is happening in our lives and how the Holy Ghost is really inspiring us or guiding us. And that's very important for us, just to take our time and look what is happening and the time that we are living. So.
0: Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes, where we get to dive in a little bit deeper to some of these stories. First, I want to jump into the story of Jacob and Esau, specifically having to do with the blessing, a story that we didn't get to talk much about uh, in the first part of the episode. Do so you want to give us a little bit of a background on this?
3: Sure. Isaac gets old. He becomes uh, blind. He's not able to see. He's bedridden. And he calls the Esau and he says, you know, my eldest son, um, go get me some venison. Uh, give me some wonderful dish and, and I will bless you. And Rebecca's listening as Isaac says this. And she goes to Jacob and she says, quick, come come with me so that you can get Esau's blessing.
0: Because what does she understand?
3: Well, I, we, we can say that we think that she understands that Jacob is supposed to be the person who is in the more powerful position. So she goes to um, Jacob and she says, come, you know, you've got you to gotta be the one to get this blessing. And um, she says, go fetch me two choice kids. And this is key. So goats, not not real kids. <laughs> goats. Um, that I may make them to a dish uh, and you can bring them to your father and then he will bless you before he dies. And Jacob says, but like, um, how can I do that? My brother's a hairy man, I'm smooth-skinned, but he'll feel me and, and then he'll get mad and give me a curse and not a blessing. It's kind of interesting that Jacob doesn't say, no, that's wrong, you know, I'm not going to do that. He's like, but what if I get caught? So, so then Rebecca says, upon me, your curse, son, just listen to my voice and go fetch them for me. So he goes... Um he gets the, the kids, he makes it, the mother makes a dish. Um, Rebecca takes the clothes as well of Esau. Mm-hmm. And this is a key thing. She takes the clothes of Esau and she also puts those on him, and the skin of the kids p- puts on Jacob, and then uh, we all know the story. Jacob goes in and says, Hello, I'm Esau. And the father says, Really? And he kind of feels him. Uh, he feels his like Jacob. <laughs> right. So so one of his senses tells him, No, you are not Esau. But then he feels him. And then he asks the question again. He says, are you my son Esau? And Jacob says, I am. Um, and then he says, come close to me. And so then when he, when he comes close to kiss him, then he smells him. Mm-hmm. And he smells Esau's clothes. And, and then he says, okay, so I've confirmed through smell and through touch, this is Esau. It's kind of weird that sounds like Jacob. But then um, that, that's enough for him. And then he, he blesses him with this beautiful blessing to be the overlord to his brothers. May your mother's sons bow before you may many nations serve you. And then um, Jacob leaves and literally right after that, Esau comes in and says, here I am, solemnly bless me. And um, Isaac begins to tremble and says, I just blessed, I gave that blessing to someone else. That must have been Jacob. And, and this is, um, Esau cries out and he says, bless me too, father. And Isaac says, your brother has come into seat and taken your blessing. And then um, Esau is really sad. And then we know from this point, uh, we know that Esau is really mad. He wants to kill Jacob. And Rebecca says, you know, Jacob, you gotta, you gotta get out of here. And so then Jacob makes this long journey, um, which we can catch up with in chapter 28.
0: Okay, so, I mean, on its surface, this sounds like a pretty crazy story when you think about, okay, wait, he just stole that blessing. And like, he, can you do that, right? Yeah, how does that, how does that even work? <laughs> why is know. this, why is it okay? Is it okay?
3: Well, I think, you know, this is, this is a story. This is the record of um, the Israelites. It's the record of the people who come out of Rebekah and Isaac and Jacob. So, so clearly they're, they're on the side of Rebekah and Jacob. And, mm. and I think the, the, text, the text seems to show that Esau is shown in different places in the text to not be a kind of worthy heir. And, and Rebekah has had this revelation from God that um, kind of specifies what's, what's the proper order of her son's. And so I think she just sees that um, what needs to happen. And I think you both were talking about how in some ways this reminds you of Eve. Uh, She sees what has to be done. And so she does something that on its face violates a commandment. In its other way, um, makes possible what God has planned.
0: Shane, what do you make of all this? Well, I I want to, I'll build off of that
5: uh, uh, similarity to Eve. I mean, Rebecca is an amazing person. And she's done things that on the face of it seem wrong. But in terms of the deceit itself, clearly Rebecca saw it as necessary. And for me, one of the things this points to is the importance of both the husband and the wife being able to receive revelation to guide the family. She had received clear revelation of, of what needed to happen. And it wasn't the domain of her husband, it, it wasn't his sole domain to have received revelation for the family, it was hers as well. And she followed through on the revelation that she had received.
3: You know, what I would say is that the Old Testament doesn't always give us really clear morals that we're able to apply to everyday life. So you
0: can't view it from their lens, our society? Well, it's modern just society. great literature.
3: And, and you know, in, in films and movies, you know, these kind of people not knowing things, um, people uh, tricking each other, all of these things make for great literature, right? You know we have the situation of a couple that loves each other very much that that's a as equal as you can get for the time they're in but where there's where there's deception because one person thinks that god wants them to do something and you know that deception caused isaac to tremble and and he was he felt you know a little betrayed and 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 deceived and um, that makes me think about um, joseph smith and emma smith when joseph smith felt like on the one hand um, God wanted him to implement this marriage practice from the Old Testament as mm-hmm. kind of part of the restoration of things. You know, So many things that Joseph Smith did were bringing back the Bible, doing the Bible. And, and plural marriage was one of them. So on the one hand, he felt like he had to do the Bible and implement this system. But on the other hand, he loved Emma. And we know from our, from our church history documents that they had a strong companion at marriage. You know, they loved each other so much. And, and so you, you see the kind of similar situation where one spouse felt like in order, they had to do this thing, but that at some point she said, okay, that's fine, go ahead. But at other points, she went back and said, this is terrible, get them out. So I think what we can see in the Old Testament, even though it's not like this neat handbook for how to behave in every situation, it does reflect our human condition. It does reflect how people have relationships and and the, the the binds that people feel like they're in when they feel like um, they're pulled in different directions. So that helps me have empathy for um, Jacob, I'm sorry, for Isaac and Rebecca and for Joseph and Emma and for all these people, um, including myself, you know, I'm getting to this question of what do we do today? Like these times where we we feel torn between these two super important prerogatives. And then what can Rebecca teach us today? Well, I think we can, um, Rebecca trusted the message that she had gotten from God and even when her son, Jacob, said, this could go wrong, this could totally go wrong, she was willing. She said, you know, I can handle that, and we're gonna we're doing this. Mm-hmm. So I, I admire her confidence that what God had said to her, she had really heard, and and that was what she was going to make happen.
5: And she's like that throughout these chapters. When the servant first comes and says, you know, great I'm glad that you're going to give me this woman to take back and uh, Rebecca's mom and brother say well we want some more time with her give us at least 10 days and he says well now I'd like to leave now and they say well let's let's let Rebecca decide and she says I mean in the bible just there's just two words I will right and I can't help but add the I will go and do the things the word mm-hmm. commands she's that kind of person she she knows what the Lord wants and she's willing to act
0: on it. So as we, as we talk about the importance of marriage, I, I kind of want to combine the two topics that we had today. In your experience as a marriage and family therapist, and not just marriage, even just relationships, what is the connection between this idea of putting off our own natural desires and the effect that that has on stronger marriages, stronger relationships? so one
5: thing that that comes to my mind is that relationships take time they take time to build they take time to to develop strong relationships and when problems come they take time to mend we can't expect that our problematic relationships are going to go from bad to good overnight um, it takes it takes a lot of time sometimes it takes years I've worked with with couples who um, have been on the verge of, of ending their relationship, on the verge of divorce. And I make them commit to spend one month in therapy for each year that they've been married so far mm-hmm. um, so that they can kind of say, we're gonna at least give this a go for at least you know 15 months or six months or five months, whatever it might be, to say this isn't gonna be something that's gonna change immediately. It's not gonna be something that's gonna change in a month or two months or three months and even once we've done the work of therapy it's still going to take time the hurts that we cause each other in our relationships aren't forgotten overnight they take sometimes years before we build up trust again so we can't expect that things are going to happen immediately because they
0: don't thank you any thoughts melissa
3: well i'm just thinking about this question of um like short term what feels like gratifying in the short term and what's important in the long term, and I, I think sometimes I, I've done this myself. Um, we have this tendency as natural selves to see marriage as like this, like this checkbox. And if I checked it, and like, yay, I've succeeded, I'm awesome. And um, and other people are like, oh, too bad for them, they're not as good as me. But like when I, I think sometimes. Um, it can be possible to turn marriage into a sort of object of idolatry. How so? Like where that's the only thing that we see, like that's the only, um, the only kind of aspect of our existence. Okay. As opposed to to Christ, who is who we actually worship. So Christ um, is bigger than that, right? Christ. Um, all of us can follow Christ, whether or not we're married, whether or mm-hmm. not we're in a marriage that's happy. No matter what. Um, Christ is who we worship, and so I think sometimes if, if we live in if we, if we only kind of stay in one culture um, where we just and our our whole idea of like what makes um, a gospel life is all about being married and having the having the marriage work all the way. I think sometimes then when it doesn't work out or when we're not able to have that life, um, that's crushing, and, and 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 we feel that. Um, that we've fallen short. So I just think that, like in my life, I've done, I've made a lot of covenants. Marriage is one of those covenants, but it's not the complete covenant, right? It's not the only covenant that I ever make. And the purpose of that covenant is to direct me towards Christ. Like our Latter-day Saint um, forebears who practice plural marriage, um, the reason why they did that, um, if you listen, read their words, as they said, because it, you know, it forces us to to love our neighbors as ourselves, even and to fight down this jealousy and the kind of natural self that arises in those situations, it's because it makes us more Christ-like. It's a trial to our feelings, but it makes us more like God and gives us more of God's capacity. So I think that um, we should get away from this idea, um, which I have sometimes that um, I've like, "Whew! I've ticked that box. I'm all good." Um, but but the, the bigger picture is Christ.
0: It's beautiful. Where's the connection? What is a tie between this idea of seeking for instant gratification and how does that affect the strength of a marriage and family?
5: Well, in many ways, um, a strong marriage comes from putting off your needs and recognizing the needs of the other. Um, we, We have to constantly be trying to serve and bless and help the other. And to do that, it means that we need to be able to put off our own wants, desires. And the great thing about marriage is that if both of us are doing that, we both get our needs, wants, and desires met because we're both trying to help the other person. Our, our partner is helping take care of us because in a good gotcha. relationship where we're both doing this, we're both getting our needs met. That's right. Because the other person is is sacrificing for us.
0: Can you think of anything specific, an example of that, or maybe how you've helped another couple see how that process works.
5: So, in the in the
0: proclamation of the
5: family, it says nothing about the woman being responsible for vacuuming and doing the dishes and, and any of that, right? So, a successful family comes from everybody doing their part. Um, and I would I hate I hate most household chores. I hate the dishes. I hate laundry. Um, but I have to put that off. And do it anyway because I know it makes my wife happy. Um, and for my wife, having a clean house is is one of her things that she needs to 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 feel okay in the world. And so I have to give up my desire to sit on the couch and watch football or whatever it might be, to to clean. Um, and she does the same. Thank you for sharing that. Now,
0: should we shift a little bit?
3: Sure. So there's this um, there's this passage in Genesis 26. And it's this long kind of story of, of wells, and it kind of you kind of wonder why it's there. So I'll just kind of summarize it. So um, Isaac was dwelling kind of amongst the Philistines, and but then the Philistines say, you know what, they're too powerful. Go go somewhere else, and probably also you're using a lot of resources, right? Um, you know, you've got all these flocks and, and stuff. So they, they go off to this other place, and in the previous days of his father Abraham, Abraham's servants had dug wells. Um, but the Philistines had blocked them up. He goes and un, unblocks these wells and, and kind of makes them work again. But then he he continues to fight on two occasions with the local people, the shepherds of Gerar. They quarrel with Isaac's shepherds and they say, this water's ours. And so there are these two wells, Isaac's shepherds um, uh, dig or unstop, but then abandon. And the names of these wells are Essek and Sidna, meaning contention and hostility. That's how they name these wells. And so they then they pull up their stakes uh, and, and the third time, they dig another well. and But then this time, no one quarrels over it. And they name this one Open Spaces. A- and then later on, there's a, a fourth well, which they dig. And this fourth well is kind of dug around the same time that the captain, uh, the king of the Philistines, says, let's make an oath between you and us where we're going to be peaceful and we'll coexist peacefully. So we have this kind of, these two wells, um, this limited resource and an extremely important resource. They're fighting over it, and, and then eventually they get to a place where they're able to coexist, and this foreshadows um, the story that comes in the chapters that follow, where Esau and Jacob, who have been locked in this bitter struggle, but eventually they are able to have these open spaces and to dwell in peace. So that's really beautiful. And then just, just generally we can think about, you know, the resources that we have uh, and how Christ you know, described himself as a, a well of living water that doesn't fail. And that's like the amazing thing, right? Because so often in our relationships, uh, not just marriage relationships, relationships with other people, our fellow Latter-day Saints, people who are different from us, the reason why we have this conflict is because we feel like if they have something, then we don't have it. It's like this zero sum game. Right. And that's the incredible thing about Christ. Moroni tells us, you know, to pray so that you can have this love of Christ. And if you have Christ's love, that won't fail. There's no limit to that. You won't run out. You won't not get enough. There's just enough, which is an incredible thought. One way to think about it is like what you said about how it takes a lot of work to dig a well. Mm -hmm. Not everyone has the resources to be digging wells. Maybe that's what missionary work is. Maybe that's what Mm -hmm. ministering is. Maybe that's what doing work of cultural competence. So you understand people who are d- in different situations from yourself is. Maybe you're um, digging wells. Like the savior is the water. Savior's always there. But like what can we do
0: to, to help provide a way to let him in. To help other people,
3: um, not okay. just ourselves, but to 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 do the work so that everyone can access um,
0: Christ. You know, that's what missionaries do. I love that analogy. This, you know, like maybe I have a shovel, my neighbor does it, I can help him dig or you know, have the means to be able to dig something. I love that that thought.
5: So well digging is providing water to uh, families in need is one of the main things that Church Humanitarian Services does. There's a project at BYU where they changed the, the. you know, kids love to play, right? They have the merry-go-rounds that you push around and they designed it so that that merry-go-round was providing water uh, in life for the community. Right? So there's wonderful things that are, that are going on, but it's all that we're we're doing all the work for people that aren't able to do it for themselves. And then the water's available. Um, we tapped into Christ. we tapped into that that groundwater who's always who's always been there,
0: and now we've made
5: it accessible to everyone.
0: I love that. It's great thoughts. Any other insights into wells?: Well, so <laughs> <laughs> ah, she's catching on. She's I, catching on.
3: I do think it's, um, you know, the great thing about the Old Testament is they have, they do these things, they fight because because the margins of their survival are so thin. They're so narrow, you know. If you don't have a well, you die. I mean, we, we live in an extremely comfortable time. And, um, and, and the pandemic, I think, has tested us. We have all, I think, you know, so many more people are struggling with mental health issues. Um, there's kind of... Uh, Economic margins are different. And I think um, this this discussion about fighting over wells helps us to to empathize with people, including ourselves, who, you know, when you don't feel like there's abundance, when you feel like you're on the margins, when you feel like um, the things that you need won't necessarily come to you, then that's an extremely... Uh, devastating feeling and it, it, it causes tension and just kind of living in this space of the old testament where you know you're just passing through the philistines and you think i've got to like make my wife say that she's my sister or else you're going to kill me right right like this this the, the kind of the gift that the old testament can give to us um is that it kind of in these stories it, it lays bare the ways in which life can be really terrible in which people can use their agency in a way that's devastating and in which the resources that you need are not always available to you. And I think you know, in in so many different situations, people on the margins, people of color, LGBTQ people, um, people who don't have enough money to make ends meet, all of these things, uh, all of these situations are situations like this where um, the the, the resources are limited and and we can have empathy for ourselves and for others who are in those situations.
0: As far as from you, you personally, what are some of the wells that you draw from that you would say allow you to keep that testimony in Christ alive?
3: Hmm. I think in the course of my life, I've learned to pray in different ways. Um, I think I've, I, I used to, you know, think you could only, I actually remember on my mission, um, someone gave a talk in, in a district conference on like the proper attitude of prayer. Like, was it like to be standing, to be sitting, to be <sighs> kneeling, like all these different things. Um, so I, I, you know, I, when I was a younger person, I thought there's only one way to pray. Uh, but then I don't know if it was cause I, I developed, you know, health conditions. that made me panic and like, oh my gosh, I need to pray all the time. Um, but in the course of my life, I think I, I learned how to pray in more ways. I've like multiplied my wells of prayer, I guess, and the places where I can draw on that strength. And that's been really helpful for me.
0: I like that idea. You can, you know, you can multiply your, your wells. I love that. So Shane, earlier we were talking, you had mentioned something about the depletion of wells. Can you give us a little more insight on that? Yeah,
5: these wells that they were fighting over, the, they were named contention and strife. Was that the other one? I can't remember. Hostility. Hostility, contention and hostility. We're treating this well as if it's a limited resource, but it wasn't. These are wells that Abraham had had dug that were being constantly replenished, but the Philistines had filled them. The water was still there. It wasn't running out. And so... There didn't need to be contention. There didn't need to be hostility around these wells. So many odd times in our lives, we treat things as if they're limited resources when they're not. One study that I did, we were going to give each partner $50 to participate in an interview. But to be part of this, both partners had to participate. We we started doing this research, and no one was participating. And they would say things like, will my ex-partner get this money too? And we'd say yes, that's part of part of the agreement. And they say, Oh, I'm not going to participate then. This hostility and contention was because we treat things as limited resources when the love of Christ, what the well represents, is is abundant.
0: It's there readily. It's there, though. yeah. You know, from talking about how the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca can relate to us, and this idea of putting off those instant gratifications. things of greater value which you spoke so beautifully of marriage and relationships so thank you so much both of you for being here thank you for your insights and for those of you at home thank you so much for joining us for another episode of come follow up come follow up is a
3: production of byu broadcasting